I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Robert Hammond, co-founder of Friends of the High Line, an organization that pioneered the transformation of an elevated train line into a public space about a mile and a half long on the west side of New York City. Robert co-founded Friends of the High Line with Joshua David, whom he met at a community board meeting to protest the High Line's demolition in 1999. The park opened to the public in 2009. Robert and Josh are the authors of the book The High Line, the inside story of New York City's Park in the Sky. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. What does the High Line look like? (laughs) Well, I mean, it was originally an old elevated rail line. So, you know, when I first saw it, it was sort of this rusting structure. But now we've cleaned it up a little bit, and there's a park on top. So you're about three stories in the air walking through the city, you know, sometimes through buildings, and it gives you just all these different perspectives on the city. Now, the High Line was first created in the 1930s as, as a safety mechanism because uh, you had trains at street level who were killing people, basically running them over. And then they were abandoned by 1980s. Why were they abandoned? Because um, with the rise of interstate trucking, the, the line was used less and less. And, um, you know, its heyday was really you know, right after it was built, 30s, 40s. But by the 60s, it was used less and less. And the last train was a trainload of frozen turkeys that ran at Thanksgiving, around right before Thanksgiving in 1980. So it wasn't that long ago that it was still, you know, an active train line. But, you know, and the trains ran, you know, when you're saying people were killed, 10th Avenue was nicknamed Death Avenue because so many people were run over by the trains. And the railroad hired a guy on horseback to run in front of the trains, and he became nicknamed the West Side Cowboy. What other deliveries were made aside from uh, frozen turkeys to these buildings along the High Line? I mean, it was actually a lot of food. The nickname for the High Line was the Lifeline of New York because it brought in a lot of food to to, to Manhattan. And a lot of the the buildings that are still next to the High Line um, used to be windowless refrigerated warehouses. And now they're offices and residences and they punched windows through. Also the Nabisco factory, which is now Chelsea Market at 15th Street, You know, they were baking cookies. You know, the train would actually bring in the eggs and the flowers, and then the trains would take out the Oreos that would go all over the U.S. So in in 1999, the city and developers and residents were planning to demolish the High Line, and you attended a community board meeting to help protest this, this demolition. What were you doing at that moment in your life? Um, I was working for a a watch retailer and helping them launch an internet division, sort of right during the internet boom. So my background was in, you know, for-profit startups, a lot of internet companies. And I read an article in the Times that the Highline was going to be demolished and had a little map and it showed that it was a mile and a half long. And I'd seen parts of it, but I just thought it was all chopped up. And so that's when I thought, wow, this is, you know, a mile and a half in Manhattan. You know, that doesn't come around very often. You mentioned this was in the 1990s, and this was the heyday of internet startups, which helped 20-somethings like yourself, you know, think that they could run these multi-million dollar companies. How much was that in your psychology of wanting to think big for yourself? Oh, I I think it was a huge part. Early 20-year-olds were taking companies public for hundreds of millions of dollars. So... 
you know, I didn't, it didn't bother me that I didn't have any experience necessarily. But, you know, when we were starting it, I thought my role and, and Josh's role would just be to get it started, and then mm-hmm. someone else would do it. But pretty quickly we found out some people might have been excited, but they didn't want to take it on. You take a year off every 10 years. It just so happened that when you were thinking about starting this project for the Highline, it coincided with one of your years off. Can you describe how you decided ultimately to take that year to to Yeah, I mean, it's not a scientific uh, (laughs) process. It's just when I was in college, um, I met uh, met my boyfriend or my first boyfriend or the first guy I ever kissed, and we didn't, we were not out of the closet. We didn't know what to do. So we dropped out of college um, and said, told our parents, didn't tell our parents why, but told our parents we were taking a year off. And we ended up moving to Hong Kong and doing construction work and traveling in Southeast Asia, worked on the stock exchange here, and just, it was a great year. I mean, it was an amazing year. It was so helpful. And I, I made, that's when I made the promise to myself that I would try every 10 years or so, you know, to take some time off for myself. And then, uh, you know, so it was really sort of a, a, I think, a coincidence there. When I started, I was 29, and that watch retailer um, later in the year got bought out by Sunglass Hut. So I made a little bit of money and had enough money to take a year off, and I thought I would travel and figure out what I wanted to do next. But ended up staying in New York and focusing mostly on the High Line and was really enjoying it. But I still, I still thought, oh, this is just something I'll do, you know, just during this year off. And to what extent was your opposition to wanting to take this on initially, the fact that you'd be running a nonprofit or, you know, socially-minded organization versus a for-profit organization? I mean, I definitely had never had any desire to run <laughs> a nonprofit. You know, I'd never had any desire to go to a community board meeting <laughs> before I went to that one. So, you know, that was part of it. I just didn't also think... Uh, running a nonprofit could be that interesting. And that was a huge mistake. Right. And it's actually very similar to startups. Because, you know, when you're in a startup, half of uh, more than half of your time is consumed by raising money. And that's the same thing in nonprofit. The problem is, you know, in a for-profit, either you stop making money and you go under. Nonprofit, the more successful you are, the more money you have to raise. It's just... <laughs> I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Robert Hammond, the co-founder of Friends of the High Line, an organization that pioneered the creation of the High Line, an elevated public park in New York City. You went to Princeton, and you weren't openly gay until mid-college. What was that like for you growing up in Texas, knowing that you were gay? Or did you not know at the time? I don't know. I mean, I definitely knew, but I didn't really think about it that much. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I was really fortunate to come out at a time when I did, because it was a very uh, much easier, you know, in the early 90s to come out than Mm -hmm. I think even, you know, five years before. My parents were very supportive. My family was really supportive, and my friends were really supportive. So it really wasn't. And then I moved to New York where it's it's pretty easy. Your parents uh, were involved in civic minded projects uh, when you were growing up in San Antonio. For instance, uh, your father helped to found Friends of the Parks in San Antonio. Is it accidental that you came to this place or how did that inform what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, for a long time, I always thought the Highline uh, reminded me of my mother because my mother was always interested in odd projects and sort of taught me from a young age to see, sort of find beauty in odd places. And then it was, I don't know, maybe like three or four, it might have been five years after I'd been working on the Highline that I realized that the things that my dad, when I was growing up, the things my dad did outside of work were he was involved in preservation, parks, and architecture. (laughs) And, you know, here I was working on a project that combined all three of those things. You know, so I think I was sort of slow to see and he was 
kind enough not to point it out. <laughs> Which implies a, a, a healthy relationship with, with your parents. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I, I think I have a very, a, I had an atypical Texan childhood. I, I became obsessed with Russia when I was in middle school after reading Nicholas and Alexandra. And um, my parents let me go to Russia when I was in middle school by myself. And then they let me live over there for three years in high school in 87, which, you know, wasn't wasn't what most Texan parents, you know, wanted their <laughs> kid to go live in the Soviet Union at the time. What do your siblings do? You have, two, you have a brother and a sister. Yeah, my, uh, my brother is an Episcopal priest in Fredericksburg, and, with, and he lives there with his wife and two in, kids. In and, Texas. In Texas, yeah. And my sister uh, lives in um, Dallas, and she has four kids. You mentioned that when you were doing the project, it seemed obvious to, to you that you were paralleling your mom's eccentric life to some degree. Your mom, for instance, kept bees in your living room in, in Texas, and she was also a, a, a kite maker and collector. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Um, the year I was born, she heard about the National Kite Flying Championship that happens on the mall. The Smithsonian hosts it every year. She'd never really done anything before, but the rule was you had to make your own kite and fly it yourself. So she made a kite and went to uh, Washington, and, and she won the National Kite Flying Championship. <laughs> and, uh, and then went on to collect, I think she one time she had the largest collection of kites in the United States. She had several shows, made some making her own kites. And, and then, you know, she would every few years she would get a new hobby from collecting brooms to animal vertebras to, you know. Whistles. I, whistles. She doesn't whistle. I mean, you could probably name a top collection, <laughs> a the downstairs bathroom, the, bu- the, the, the bathroom, the bathtub is filled with all different ki- devices that make bubbles. I read a quote. Uh, she said, a kite and a person have many similarities. They both have skin and bones and rely on the same thing to get them going, air. <laughs> yeah. When she said when I was, she loved the name Highline because high of kite flying. And, and she, there's, I don't know if it was her quote or someone else's, but she always used to say, it's hard to have bad thoughts when you're looking up. That like when you look down, one, you're usually not as happy, but it also makes you more unhappy. When you look up, you're just sort of already either happier or it makes you a little happier. And that's something, you know, it's connected to the Highline. I want to go back to 1999 when you heard about this potential demolition of the High Line. You went to this community board meeting just as a concerned citizen in the West Village, and you happened to be sitting next to this guy, Joshua David, who became your your partner. Did you both come up with the idea, you know, let's start this, or was it more of a eventual process? It was more like, oh, you know, here's my business card. Oh, here's, you know, we exchanged business cards. And I said, well, I'm really busy. Why don't you do something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll help. And he was like, well, I'm busier. You do it and I'll help, you know. Mm-hmm. So we were like, okay, well, let's talk. David is a writer. And at the time, he was writing for magazines ranging from... Yeah, tra- uh, Travel and Leisure, Gourmet, Wallpaper. Were you at all in any way strange bedfellows? Yeah, well, I think one of the reasons it worked is we are so different. His background was in writing and magazines. Mine was in startups. I think that's one of the things that has made it work is Mm. that we were precisely so different and that neither of us had any experience in planning architecture. Uh, You know, that most people assume we were architects. At what point did you say, you know what, we don't have a background in this. Let's come up with this competition. From the beginning, we always said, let's... We're not, he and I are not going to decide this. And that, that's why it was great that we weren't architects. I think if we had been architects, it would have been 
irresistible for us to want to design it. Who were the architects for the project? So it was led by James Corner Field Operations, who's a landscape architect, and he partnered with James Diller Scafidio and Renfro Architects, and also Pete Uldoff, who is the garden designer who picked a lot of the plants. They became the designers of the project uh, as a result of a competition that you held. And some are, some other ideas in the competition ranged from a mile-long swimming pool to a roller coaster. What other ideas were there? <laughs> there was one idea where it was called a park prison. <laughs> and the idea was sort of a political manifesto is that we should have to see the people that we imprison. So you'd have a park on the High Line, and in, in the I-beams in the middle you would imprison people. So as you're having your leisure stroll, you'd also have to see people in prison. <laughs> I mean, my favorite was the pool. This, mm-hmm. cause it was such a clean idea, this mile-long lap pool. And imagine, you know, swimming, you know, no lap turns. And then in the winter, it would become a, you know, a mile-and-a-half skating rink. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Robert Hammond, co-founder of Friends of the High Line. We'll hear more from Robert coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Robert Hammond, co-founder of Friends of the High Line, an organization that pioneered the transformation of an elevated train line into a public space about a mile and a half long on Manhattan's west side in New York City. Friends of the High Line relies on support from members to fund the ongoing maintenance of the park, as well as the expansion of its third section to be completed in 2014. The design for the High Line was determined through this competition that you held. In what way was opening this up to the public strategic? There was one of our early supporters, a guy, Phil Ahrens, and he said, you know, don't show people designs. And it was one of the best um, pieces of advice. And I always, whenever I'm talking to people, they're starting their own projects. Everyone wants to rush to do, get into the design and show what it's going to look like. And, you know, I think there was a real advantage not to because people could then imagine things that they want to see up there. And that's when we had this um, photographer, Joel Sternfeld, go up and shoot the High Line. And Josh and I think of him as almost sort of the, co- the, the third co-founder because he, he took these photos that sold the project for us. You know, you could look at it and say, well, you know, it's just an abandoned railroad with weeds growing on it. But, you know, it's weeds growing on an abandoned rail track with the Empire State Building in the background. So this is Manhattan. And so, you know, people looked at that and saw all different things. Some people saw a chance to build something. Some people saw a chance for gardens. Some people saw perennials. Some people saw the wild grasses. Some people saw preservation. Some people thought trains. You know, it enabled us to really create a broad group of support, not just sort of a narrow, you know, just architects or just preservationists. So the lack of specificity really helped to facilitate this current of interest. Yeah. But what the, the beauty of it is then it all came back, actually, ironically, to that very photo. When people when we asked people in the community, what did they want? They pointed to Joel's photo. And the, the beauty of what the design team did was they didn't just make make it look exactly like that. They captured the spirit and the feeling of what was up there, but also added something new. Ironically, the opposition to the project was almost helpful to you. Yeah. Can you describe that, that paradox? Yeah. Well, at first when we came on board, you know, we really didn't know who we were up against. But then it became pretty clear that the city, led by Mayor Giuliani, was against it. He signed a demolition order three days before he left office. 
the property owners in the neighborhood had been organizing to tear it down for years. And actually, a lot of people in the neighborhood, you know, just thought it was an eyesore. Even if they thought it would be nice if it was a park, they thought these two guys are never going to make it happen. So you should just get it over with and tear it down. But, you know, my elevator pitch was it's a mile and a half Manhattan. How often do you get a chance to think about that? I'd show him the Joel Sternfeld photo. If that didn't work, I could always say, and Giuliani hates it. And then people go, oh, really? Then it must be a great idea. I'd be happy to help. When did you become uh, more and more certain that actually, you know what, this is something that can happen despite the intransigence of this prior? Yeah, I mean, I think I was one of the last people to believe that it would really happen. I mean, I'm I'm a dreamer, but I'm also a realist and knew the chances from the beginning were very small. And then as we started making a lot of progress, we had just so many, it was so complex with so many legal, financial, regulatory, and political hurdles and just engineering problems that I was just convinced some, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have taken a lot for it all to fall apart. I mean, Josh and I, part of the, one thing that we're very much alike is we always sort of worrying and seeing the problems coming up. So... We had a development director one time who said she was the only organization she'd ever been at. When you got a million-dollar check, we just kept our heads down and kept typing on the computer and kept working. And it's still, it's now just still sinking in that this actually not only happened, but is actually working, you know, that people are liking it. You obviously faced just an abundance of opposition. What were some of the darkest, like, personal moments uh, for you? Like, did it ever get to a point where you just didn't like what you were doing? Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, for me, I like the process. The times I would get really upset and lose sleep, it was always interpersonal things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was, you know, when Josh and I weren't getting along, you know, we've had our ups and downs. Most people, you know, assume... Um, that we're sort of best friends and it's and you know it's been really tough and there's been several points in the project where we didn't think we could keep working together and you know those were always in some ways the the hardest uh, time for me. In the early days uh, you took the stance of you were neighborhood nobodies you know which uh, well no I didn't take someone called us neighborhood nobodies it yeah but you kind of ran with it uh, yeah. w- what's that quote uh, don't be so humble you're not that great yet yeah yeah um, no we definitely play the humble game <laughs> I, we, we definitely play that game a little uh, bit yet yet uh, even though you played that game you you were quite professional and quite deliberate about certain things one of which was hiring lawyers versus asking lawyers to work pro bono for you. Well, I mean, one of the things I think most nonprofits or maybe anybody, you know, is loath to do is pay lawyers a lot of money. (laughs) But at the time, we needed to sue the city on a very specific rail use and land use issue. And the lawyers that could do it pro bono weren't the best in that area. And the lawyers that were the best are usually hired by the city or the railroad, and they didn't want to do it pro bono. So that's when we realized, you know, that's how developers get things done. They hire the really smart lawyers. And so we wanted to take a page from that book. The High Line wouldn't be standing today if it wasn't for those lawyers. Um, and we had to pay. We had to pay a lot of money. And that's in the early days. It wasn't that glamorous, but that's what we were raising money for was to pay these lawyers to stop the demolition. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Robert Hammond, co-founder of Friends of the High Line, an organization that pioneered the transformation of an elevated train line in New York City into a public space. I want to talk a little bit more about the opposition. 
Why was opposition to keeping the High Line so fierce? And what was one impediment that disappeared that kind of helped to open the floodgates? Well, the High Line was an was a the ra- a railroad CSX owned the High Line, but all they owned was the steel structure and a thirty foot easement above it. So there were twenty two property owners that owned property underneath it and air rights above it, and they thought it would eventually come down. So they just wanted to tear it down. So that's why there was such um, opposition and a lot of money involved because these developers, you know, had bought property hoping the High Line would come down so they could develop in that space. I mean, one of the developers said he's, uh, they spent over $3 million in legal fees fighting us. And then, you know, some people in the community, you know, to me, how romantic, a train running through your neighborhood. The reality was not romantic. It was dirty. It was loud. It smelled. You didn't live on the wrong side of the tracks. You lived under the tracks. And in some cases, their buildings have been demolished because they were worth more for parking than as buildings. So it sort of put the neighborhood in a deep freeze, which for some people like me is interesting, but from an economic standpoint, you know, is not sustainable in a city like this. So a lot of people wanted to tear the Highland down and get on with it. And that's where Amanda Burden, um, who is the planning chair for the Bloomberg administration, came in and did a rezoning that allowed uh, the property rights to be transferred within a district. It's what saved, um, you know, most people think it was it's Jackie O that saved Grand Central, which she did. But the legal mechanism was they allowed the railroad that owned Grand Central, ironically, to transfer their development rights anywhere in the neighborhood. Normally, you can only transfer it to your neighbor. It also saved the theaters uh, in Times Square in the 90s. It, you know, it's used very infrequently. But Amanda passed this very complicated rezoning that allowed these developers um, to actually make money off owning property under the High Line. And then that's what got them on board. Who were some of your unlikely supporters in in the early days? Well, we had Florent, but I mean, that didn't surprise, you know, he, Florent had this restaurant on Gansevoort Street that really was one of the early pioneers in the meat market. And he put us in touch with Diane von Furstenberg, who had a store in the neighborhood. The designer married to Barry Diller, who runs Interactive Corporation. Yeah. And her and her son and Barry you know, really got behind the project and one of was one of our, our first really big, you know, financial supporters. Edward Norton was another one, um, the actor. He read an article that Adam Gopnik wrote about um, Joel's photos of the Highline that was in The New Yorker, and he read it and looked us up in information and called up Josh. And Josh was just sort of talking to him, and he said Edward Norton, and then halfway through he said, are you? And he said, yes, I'm Edward Norton, the actor. <laughs> and so he said, oh, I really want to help. He mailed us a check right away, would show up at meetings, go to community board meetings. I mean, he actually really dug in. You also had a lot of support from the gay community in in the West Village. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, Josh and I are both gay. And, you know, I think we thought traditionally, you know, nonprofits were run by people on the Upper East Side that you see in the style section of the New York Times or, you know, just, just... famous, rich people. And in the beginning, they weren't that interested in this project. So we tapped the people that we knew, which was our friends, which was a lot of gay people. I mean, one of my straight friends from college came to one of our first events, and he was like, wow, there are a lot of men here. You know, he he didn't get it was all gay men except him. Um, 
Herbert Mushamp, who was the old architecture critic for the Times, has this great quote about the story of preservation in New York is the alliance of gay men and rich women, straight women. Speaking of straight women, there was a woman, Betsy Barlow Rogers, uh, who founded the Central Park Conservancy. She was helpful to you. Well, I mean, one, it's great. She's from San Antonio, my hometown. She went to high school with my dad. What, what she did is she created a private group that partnered with the Parks Department and the city to turn around Central Park and then help run it. And so, you know, without that precedent, the Highline was so unlikely, I don't think we could have ever pioneered yet a new model. And same with Bryant, Dan Biederman at, at, at Bryant Park. And we were lucky to have a willing partner. You know, Bloomberg was willing, even though we had never <laughs> done this before, was willing to see us as a credible partner. In addition to help from from Betsy, you also received help from a couple of classmates of yours from Princeton, one of whom was Gifford Miller. Yeah, so Gifford was um, actually my boyfriend's roommate in, in college. When I first called up Gifford, he was he was a city council person, I think one of the youngest city council person ever elected at the time, and he said, well, that's a really stupid idea. No, to you. Yeah, and he said, why don't you call Christine Quinn? She's a local city council. You know, he was basically pawning me off, and Christine was actually much more supportive. But then we got Gifford to go up there, and Gifford really fell in love with it. And then another, uh, another one of my best friends from college, Mario Palumbo, became our treasurer. He helped get his boss on board, a guy named Phil Ahrens, and he was a developer. And he helped give us a lot of credibility because all the developers in the neighborhood and the city thought it was a bad idea. So here was a really successful New York developer that was saying, this makes sense. Robert Caro, or Bob Caro, who's the author of Power Broker, a book about Robert Moses, he came up with you one day to look at the High Line. And that was sort of one of your personal high points in all this. How come? Well, I got a message on my machine, you know, from Bob Caro, and I was just over the moon, you know, and I, I took him and his wife up on a tour of, you know, when the Highline was still wild. And he was so excited about the project and he was so complimentary to me. And that's when it really first started sinking in that, wow, I might be doing something really special. I read his book right when I moved to New York. It's such a great primer mm-hmm. on everything about New York. Mm-hmm. And there's a great section in The Power Broker where it talks about how Robert Moses um, builds uh, the West Side Improvement Project, which was part of the High Line. And it cost $150 million in 1930, so equivalent to the big dig you know, now. And he goes through several pages about how he got the money piece by piece by piece. And I'm not a real Robert Moses fan, but it was also just sort of inspiring to see you know, it doesn't come at once. You don't have to see how you're going to get the money. And so I always kept those um, pages, you know, by my, um, I'd Xeroxed them and they were, you know, by my desk. In that way, you're similar to Robert Moses. Um, but but Robert uh, Caro, who went up there, actually thought that your project was the inverse of yes. something Moses would do. Yeah, I mean, he, he liked the irony that it was helped created by a Robert Moses project, but that Robert Moses would probably would not have liked it, Why? you know, because it was a bottom-up project. You know, Robert Moses' project were the ultimate um, projects of top-down, you know, of, mm-hmm. of government authority pushing it through, you know, against community support, where this project really started in the community and then sort of bubbled up. You raised $150 million for phase one and two of, of the project. 
And this, by the way, the project was full steam ahead, really during an economic crisis uh, in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts a- about that? Did you ever feel, huh, you know, maybe this money could be used for schools? Or what was your psychology around that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we realized early on, and a guy um, who's also one of the people that's been really important to the project, a guy named John Alshuler, um, helped us do an economic feasibility study and to show how this would become an economic generator for the city. And, you know, that it wasn't, that it really made economic sense, that this was a good investment. And it's turned out to be, you know, true beyond our wildest dreams. You know, it's generated over $2 billion in development already. And we estimate it'll be about $900 million that'll be returned to the city in additional real estate taxes over 20 years. People have said about you that you are a superior marketer. And that obviously, you know, that that, that helped. Yeah. You know, I think to me, one of the things that was important for me was the graphic identity and sort of graphics, um, which Paula Cher did our our logo, you know, a few months after we started. And it's now the logo for the park. And so in a very very early stage, we put a real emphasis on the graphics. And it was twofold. One, to make people think it was we had more going on than we did and that they'd want to get involved. But it was also that it was a commitment that we were going to follow through on good design. And this is at a time when, you know, Steve Jobs and Apple uh, are, you know, gaining acceleration. You have the the iPod. How much of that was was in your thoughts? I remember that I, I remember those iPod. We actually knocked off one of those early iPod <laughs> ads for one of our events. Um, but it was a commitment that we weren't just going to put up a planter and put up a stair and call it a day. You look a little bit, I think, like like Jimmy Stewart, you know, and, and he he was uh, in this movie Rear Window by Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> and I actually think of Rear Window yeah. when I'm walking on the High Line because it's about uh, just being up close with your neighbors. And you have people walking on the High Line and, you know, peeping in. Yeah. Uh, people are voyeurs like myself. And, you know, we like to see what's going on uh, in the residences around, around you. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, that dynamic. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we really um, we loved about when we first heard the design team is in their first interview. One I love because they were arguing amongst themselves in their interview, which I liked. <laughs> but they also used the word, I think Liz Diller used it, was the word illicit. You felt like you were doing something, you know, not like hardcore illegal, but, you know, like mm-hmm. riding your bike the wrong way on a street or something. And then, you know, right after we opened, our, the first big scandal was that the New York Post did a big story about... Um, you know, people standing on the High Line watching people have sex in the Standard Hotel, which is right above the High Line, which is a little bit... I mean, I look all the time and I never see it, but, um, you know, so it's become almost like an urban myth and you'll see tourists just planted, staring up, you know, waiting for something, <laughs> hoping something's going to happen in the hotel windows. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I also think... Usually when you go up in buildings in New York, you go to the Empire State Building, you know, you're at this high vantage point and people look like ants. The Highline, you're you're just, you know, 30 feet above the street. So you can make eye contact with people on the street. It has this it, it's very different feeling and, and experiencing the city. It makes the city almost look quainter, not not as majestic. By the way, what do you do as, as a hobby? <laughs> um, I'm a... I, I used to be more of a painter. I used to, I, I didn't study it, but I started sort of taking it up in the in the 90s. And uh, right before I started the High Line, I'd had a few very, very small shows. And, um, but lately I haven't, I haven't been painting that much. 
you meditate daily. What kind of meditation do you do and what does it do for you? It's just a mantra-based meditation. It's um, So I, I learned to meditate, you know, several years ago. And it's just, a, I do it 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. And I always hit, I think like most people, this sort of a low or this wall, you know, I don't know, some glucose shortfall, you know, around three or four. And so I originally would go back. We had an old um, storage closet and I would go back there to meditate. And gradually more and more people at the office have learned. And now there's almost 10 of us. And a lot of us, you know, every day at around four, sometimes six, we'll go back in the storage closet and, and meditate together. Well, thank you very much for joining us. My guest has been Robert Hammond, co-founder of The High Line. Coming up, we'll meet Sam Goldman, co-founder of Delight. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Sam Goldman, co-founder of Delight, a company that sells affordable solar lighting and power to consumers in developing countries. Roughly 20% of the world population does not have access to reliable electricity. D-Light is focused on providing cleaner, cheaper, safer lighting and energy in over 60 countries. Sam started D-Light in 2007 with Ned Tozen, whom he met at Stanford Business School. Prior to starting D-Light, Sam served in the Peace Corps in Benin, West Africa. Welcome. Thank you. Your first foray into the developing world was not in the Peace Corps uh, after college. You grew up with a family who caused you to live in several places. Your mother, uh, for example, was focused on maternal health, right? Yes. And your father on on agriculture. What are some memories you have of that? Uh, Well, a lot of them, especially when I was growing up, were some of the amazing vacations we took, actually. So, you know, flying into a drug trafficking strip in the Amazon rainforest. You have to take a boat up the Amazon for three, four hours, and it's just surrounded by animals howling at night. Things like that, which were pretty unusual and very sticky in a child's mind. What are some uh, impressions of, you know, what your mother did, for instance, that stuck with you outside these uh, exotic vacations? Um, Well, I just remember, especially in, in India, she got a plaque saying, you know, thanking her for making a contribution to the lives of 10 million women and children in India. And it was sort of like, a, oh, my gosh, my mom's doing this really interesting work. And she wasn't trying to make huge technological shifts. She was trying to get, make sure that women understood that they should breastfeed. How was the experience of the Peace Corps different from what you expected since you had tangentially been in this world previously? Um that's a good question. There's no substitute for actually doing it and living it yourself. You can theor- you can read about it, you can watch movies about it, you can theor- theoreticize about it. But when you go out and actually do it and you live there and you feel the seasons and you eat the same food everybody else does and you go and you work in the fields and, and see how long and how much effort it takes to grow yams and then to turn them into a food and, and, and how unreliable your source of income is when you're dependent on the weather and the, and the crops and food prices globally. All these little things that after a while you start to really understand what is important to people. And it was in the Peace Corps where you had your first experience with kerosene lamps, uh, where you discovered how ineffective and dangerous they are, and that had a deep impact on you. What was your exposure to kerosene lamps firsthand? And when you're in the Peace Corps, in, in many countries, certainly in West Africa, you're given a you're issued by the government a, a kerosene lantern, and so I used that for my three and a half years of Peace Corps service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't want to use it, and so and the, really the game changing experience for me was when a a friend had bought from Walmart or Kmart or somewhere an LED headlamp, and they left the country, and I got their headlamp, and so I, I just switched 
over and started wearing this headlamp at night and all of a sudden I could see things and I could cook inside and I, I didn't I wanted to read because it was more pleasant and I didn't feel sort of uh, lightheaded when I was reading under the lamp and so and that's when I started like writing LED companies and and saying, hey, here's this unmet market need. Can I distribute for you? We got to make this happen. And, and just with these LED lamps, just with simple battery powered LED lamps and saying, well, like, why isn't this? Why is there there's a total market failure? Why isn't this happening? And literally not one person responded to an email or a letter. So when did the idea for a solar uh, lamp arrive? The thing that really tipped me over the edge, my next door neighbor, who was a 15 year old boy at the time, he got in a car- He had a kerosene fire accident and he almost died and he got third degree burns all over his body but he survived and he's he's fine now um, but that got me researching I found out that like a million people a year die from kerosene fires once it starts it spreads all over the place it causes a lot of harm so people are they're scared of kerosene they're spending a lot of money on it it's unhealthy for them um, and it's really a terrible source of light it doesn't mm-hmm. it's not actually very bright solar is magical it's you put it outside and it just delivers you free power and this notion that you're not going to be dependent on somebody else to charge and you don't have to walk or drive to a charging station and you won't have this constant outlay of cash, it totally changes the game. They've never been had, they've never had independent power, control over their power independently before. So you had this grievance with kerosene lamps kind of in your back pocket mm-hmm. as you made your way to Stanford Business School. How does a biologist and a Peace Corps enthusiast uh, decide to go to business school? I wasn't planning to go to business school. I was when I was in Peace Corps. Essentially, I, I was I was and I was an anti-capitalist. I was this biologist, environmentalist. I had ridden my bike across Canada, kind of doing this climate change route. I was doing all these things, and then when I got to Benin, I realized the only thing that was really, really changing the country and changing it quickly was business. Not none of, but a lot of the NGOs and the public sector activities I was seeing in my distant village of 2,000 people, they just weren't having the same impact. So I decided I wanted to go become a social entrepreneur and applied only to the schools that were really on the vanguard of that. And Stanford was one of them. So I was told that you uh, used to have a beard, you used to wear a lot of necklaces. (laughs) What did uh, Sam look like 10 years ago? Gosh. Well, so I didn't have any money um, uh, and I didn't have anybody I had to impress for any reasons. So, you know, I wore a lot of the local garb, so very long, flowy clothes, um, you know, my best friend in my village was a tailor. You know, it could be a living room. It could be patterns of a living room all over my body or like, I don't know, like bananas or like it was really sort of fun. You know, if you've seen West African clothes, they're, they're beautiful and they're gorgeous and they're, they're creative. Um, yeah. And a big beard and sometimes colored hair and, you know, just want, I was having fun. This is your Peace Corps years? These are my Peace Corps years. So come Stanford Business School. How long did that last? Uh, oh, well, you know, you drive up that palm-lined boulevard and, and, you know, every leaf that falls off a tree gets somehow miraculously swept up by someone somewhere. It's hard to be quite so. And, and you don't realize, you, you just, you know, we're humans, right? We adapt to our circumstances. So when I was in a village, there's no washing machine anywhere. You do it by hand. Nothing ever gets clean. And so that was just the way I kind of was. But then once I'd shifted focus, yeah, I, I, I kind of cleaned up my act. <laughs> hmm. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My I guess to Sam Goldman, co-founder of Delight, a company that produces solar lighting and energy products to consumers at the bottom of the pyramid in developing countries, where one out of three people does not have access to reliable energy. 
The idea and prototypes for Delight grew out of a class that Sam took at Stanford Business School with co-founder Ned Tozum called Design for Extreme Affordability. Now, I say it was out of the business school, but it was really out of the Stanford Design School, uh, where pioneer David Kelly, he founded this program. Can you talk to me about how the idea went from just that to something more concrete uh, in, in, that, in that space? Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the design school was almost a startup within, within Stanford the first semester was essentially learning how to do design and human-centered design the way IDEO kind of teaches it with all sorts of mini projects. And then the second semester was we had a, a client, a, a customer, which was an NGO based in Myanmar, and we had to go and actually produce a produce something valuable for them that they could take to market. Uh, and they worked in the water space predominantly. And for whatever reason, there was a small group of us who we just weren't as excited about doing something in the water space, and we really wanted to do energy. And I personally was f- pushing a lot for doing something in energy because I had been in Peace Corps, and I had lived for a couple years with a kerosene lantern, and I knew that there were better options. And so I I, and, and I knew that was true also in Myanmar. And so we kind of coalesced and talked to this NGO about whether we could go and, and would they be interested if we could come up with a better source of lighting than what the typical population in Myanmar would have. If we could design something, would they be interested in taking it to market? And they said, yes, that would be a good project. Let's do it. What did you discover in Myanmar specifically because of the totalitarian government? I mean, the country... Uh, used to be a source where people would go to Myanmar for edu- higher education. All over South Asia was recognized there was actually a, somewhat of a grid that went out to these villages and there was electricity and it's all fallen apart. They didn't even have kerosene, which is sort of the worst form of lighting for most people in the world, but you, kerosene was banned. So mm-hmm. people would burn diesel as their only source of light if they could get it. Or if you didn't want to burn diesel, which is, you can imagine, pretty noxious way to live your life, you would pony up for very expensive tiny little candles that would burn quickly. Um, And then if you had a little more money and wanted to splurge, you could buy these really noxious lead acid batteries, which would run for like a day or two, and they would charge them up on these massive like 1920, 1930s generators. Uh, And they would tell us like, oh, yeah, you know, you know that the batteries are being charged well if the acid is boiling. The whole thing was so amazingly wrong and, and backwards that it really... It blew our minds. And I think the story, some of the stories were what allowed us, I think, ultimately to get some of the venture funding we got in the Valley. What are some of those stories? You know, I, we uh, so we participated in this one thing called the DFJ Venture Challenge. DFJ being, being Draper Fisher, a leading venture firm in the venture Valley. Venture firm. And what they do is they take all the winners of the various business school competitions and they pit them all up against each other in this one DFJ Venture Challenge. We went in to just sort of tell the human story. And the story we told was about a woman named Mia. And we had gone to her village and left them some very early prototypes, look nothing like what we have now. It was a large family and they would just essentially get up at like 10 p.m., go out, dig up the earth, and work all night making these mud bricks, which they sold for half a penny each later. And they would have to work all night and then get done in the morning and leave them out so that during the during the day they would get baked by the sun and then they could sell the bricks. And so these lights completely changed their lives. But she literally started crying when we said, you know, we have to take these prototypes back. They don't they're not going to work long term. This is just something we put together. This is like one lady out of two billion. And this is going to matter. And it's going to matter a lot. What did the initial prototypes out of the D school look like? Yeah, there were. I mean, and obviously the D school methodology is get it done and get it, get it done fast and learn as quickly as you can. Right. So, I mean, we just had we, you know, a bo- you'd slap a battery into a box and run a naked wire off it to a little circuit board with some LED solder to it. I mean, it was 
not a consumer product in any way, shape, or form. And we just wanted to experiment with how much power, how much light is enough, what are kind of the price points that we need to hit. Uh, to make this to make this viable, and then also, is it does it have to be solar? Can it can it be a combination of, you know, just fast charging technology or batteries or not? Distribution was harder for you than you had expected. Can you talk to me about what that landscape is? Because that's really the gating factor in a way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We don't realize that the you know uh, the average base of the pyramid family or, or individual is not a consumer. A lot of them are subsistence farmers. They grow their own food. Um, They buy just a few essentials that they absolutely need. They are used to word of mouth, and they're used to testimonials that come from people they trust, not from companies uh, that come from some other land. Um, And that's... That is the hard and expensive part, is to get out and actually build a new category that does not, did not exist even a couple of years ago. Can you give some examples of just firsthand experience that you had in educating? Well, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, we were, so we were at this award ceremony yesterday, and, and one of those speakers who came, uh, and we're honored to have him, was the CEO of SKS Microfinance, uh, which is one of the world's largest microfinance institutes. And, and we have partnered with them. And we originally started, and I did in 2008 when I went to India, because uh, microfinance loan officers are actually going out into the deepest communities and you know groups of women come once a week and meet together uh, and they distribute loans of $200 or less to these women but it's an opportunity to say here's a new technology and it's coming from somebody they trust who mm-hmm. they know and have known for many weeks and to say here it is here's how it works if you'd be interested we'd be able to offer it to you on some kind of financing so that it doesn't become a burden and they can go and try it and experience it and that's an example of a distribution channel, which has been very, very powerful for us and a very good partner. Another partner for for you is the French company Total. Who are they? Uh, absolutely. So that's another, you know, a really interesting one that you wouldn't immediately think about. But, you know, Total has an interest in being an energy company, not just in being an oil company, even though that, you know, I don't know exactly their revenue split. But they have uh, retails, almost like mini marts, gas stations all over the world. And they have a very high concentration of them in uh, Africa and South Asia also. Uh, and so we've partnered with them to be able to put our lights into their stations, which is a trusted, well-known place that people can go to if they want to buy the technology. The price of uh, your technologies range from, is it $7 to $40, depending upon what, what you're selling? Is that? Uh, it really ranges from probably around 8 to $10 on the low end up to uh, you know, just south of two hundred dollars for a solar home system with multiple lights and you know running a radio and charging cell phones and doing other things. Do you remember your first customers? Yeah, we had first customers. I mean, we had sold things before we moved overseas. We were working out of a garage in Mountain View. I mean, we were kind of the typical startup. Uh, and I remember we, we had sold things before we even had products. So I had sold into I think it was the Infosys Foundation in India. And when I think about it now, it's ridiculous, right? We hadn't made, we hadn't finished making the product. We certainly hadn't shipped it. And when we did try to ship it, this is before like we didn't know any the details of international business. You have to get all these permits. And you can't just bring a product into a country. And we didn't have the the VAT certificate, all this stuff. So it was a pretty steep learning curve. I would be really excited to redo another business at some point where I don't have to go through all these learnings and can just get it right the first time. We're talking a little bit at 10,000 feet on the impact that these lights and these products have had. Can you talk to me on a more granular level on how you've changed uh, these people's lives? Oh, absolutely. You know, we were, this was in, in 
Uttar Pradesh in India, which is a, one of the largest states. And, and we were coming back and talking to a farmer at night and he was saying, oh, and he was using Hindi and I don't know the exact phrase, but he was essentially saying, thank you. Delight is almost like a god. It's, you know, thank you so much for having brought this. I was coming back and a snake almost bit me, but I saw the snake because I have your light. And then proceeded to tell us all these stories of other people who'd been bitten by snakes uh, and leading to, you know, often fatal accidents. I heard that you were bit by a snake at some point and you had a kerosene lamp. Okay. Yeah, I did. I did actually during Peace Corps walk and I was because you know, with a kerosene lamp, you can't really see anything. So I did walk into my house once and got bitten by a snake, dropped the lantern. It smashed. I'm sitting in the dark. I know I've been bitten. And it turned into quite an adventure because my health center didn't have any vaccines. And a friend of mine like put me on the back of his motorcycle, drove me seven kilometers. I get to this health center and the, and the guy says, oh, great. Yeah, I have I actually have the serum for you. Um, and you're really lucky because somebody came in last week for it, but they couldn't afford it. So I couldn't give it to them. Huh. It's like, oh, gosh. You've spent the majority of your time in the developing world. You're living in Vancouver now in Canada, but you were living in India prior. How long were you in India after business school and getting this off the ground? After business school, uh, I moved to India. My co-founder moved to Shenzhen, China. And essentially, I started up the sales and marketing. I was running product development. He was doing more operations and finance part of the company. Um, and so I was in India for a couple of years. But I'd actually done my high school there. So I had some familiarity and, and knew some people in India. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I moved to Hong Kong and opened the office there as we started to expand more internationally. Uh, and now I live in, in Vancouver um, because my wife, I'm half Canadian. My wife's also Canadian. And Speaking of your wife, I was wondering uh, what your kind of uh, private social life uh, was <laughs> life, uh, you know, because you've, you've had a nomadic existence. And then I saw you walk into the office here uh, with your wife, Rosie, who is pregnant. It's nice to see that that part of your life was <laughs> able to be enriched simultaneous with, uh, you know, your, your professional one. How did you meet your wife? How did you meet uh, we Rosie? We met originally, yeah, we, I met Rosie, an undergraduate, uh, and we were together. Uh, and there was something just magical about the way we were, but school ended. We both went our separate ways and sort of kept in touch with each other maybe once every five years or so. Um, but a group of friends from undergraduate, we do kayaking trips every once in a while. Now we've turned it into a habit in, in British Columbia and Canada. And so we saw each other one year. And the next thing I know... She was coming over to Hong Kong on a one-way ticket, and things went from there. What do your parents make of, of all this? Oh, of course, they're ridiculously excited and proud of all the work that we're doing. And it's it's so much an extension of what they had done beforehand. Just opening up their, you know, they had very good personal relationships with people all over the world, whether it was in India with the business or, or health communities, or whether it was in Rwanda with the, you know, government communities, and just being able to link me back into those families and individuals. Because in the end, whether it's business or whether it's development work, it's all personal. So they had a they had a vast Rolodex. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Isn't it interesting how we use the term Rolodex now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've spent your life shifting back and forth between developing countries and, you know, Canada or the United States. What do you find most striking when you return to let's say Vancouver? How lucky we are. <laughs> yeah, the world's not fair. The work that people have to do for a couple dollars a day. 
even in your daily in your daily life? Like, what do you find striking? Well, landing, you know, you land in Vancouver if you're coming from Beijing or you're coming from New Delhi, and all, and it's like you have to squint because it's so bright and the sun, like the sun's just blaring and it's so clean and pure and the air is so, you know, it's a like little thing. The, the air is so pure. Like, where else do I get this kind of air that I can breathe, which you'd think everybody would get? And it's so silent. The streets are more or less empty. Nobody's bothering me, and I can go home to my house where I can drink the water out of the tap. And it's just all these really kind of banal stuff which we take totally for granted but everything works mm-hmm. thank you very much for joining us thank you my guest has been sam goldman co-founder of delight if you would like to learn more about the show please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org you can also follow us on twitter at jess g harris or find us on facebook i'm jessica harris this is from scratch from scratch